Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Tim Merritt. Heaven, I just want to thank you for the opportunity of sharing your word today, Lord. It is a great honour to be able to do that. And I just pray, Lord, that uh, I'll be used by your spirit today, that the words I speak will be your words, and the hearts that hear this message, Lord, will be touched. And not only touched, Lord, but drawn closer to you. Be with those um, amongst us that have not been able to make it this morning. I know there are some that is not well. We just, Lord, pray for them and uh, pray for them as they hear this message online as well. So uh, just be with us now. Shut us in with you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the end in sight, part two. You know, when uh, I was about, oh, in my 30s, between the age of 35 and 39, a young fellow by the name of Colin Leeson. How many people know Colin Leeson? Yeah, I'm glad you know him, Neville. <laughs> That's Neville's son. He got me into a thing called triathlons. And I wasn't a very good swimmer at the time, but I would make my very best effort. And, but I was very competitive. So I ended up doing a lot of training and worked very hard at uh, what I did. And at one particular time, there was this race coming up called a duathlon. And so that's where we don't have to swim. And I thought, beauty, I'm going in that. So I started doing a few duathlons. And then there was an event which was actually a world qualifying event for age groupers. And I decided to enter this event and see if I could actually get into the worlds to actually compete in my age group from 35 to 39. Now, the distance of the race was a 10 kilometer run. How many people are tired already? <laughs> a 40 kilometer cycle. And then when you've got off the bike, you have to do another five kilometer run. Now I, try, I trained very hard for this and I was reasonably confident, certainly not reasonably confident about getting in the top 12 uh, in this event, but um, I was gonna give it my best effort. And I started off and I went, I thought I held enough back in the first 10 kilometer race. And then I jumped on the bike and I was going for it on the bike and there was a few guys in front of me and I thought I was the best at the bike leg. And I enjoyed that the most, so I did the most training on that bike leg. But as uh, I was trying to make sure some people didn't get out of sight, I got about to the 10 kilometre mark on the bike and I could feel that I was hitting the wall. And I'll tell you what, it was very, very hard. My uh, average speed, I think, dropped back about five kilometres an hour. And I got in off the bike and I jumped into my running shoes and started running the last five kilometres. There was two laps in this last five kilometres. And if I was to run five kilometres on my own, it'd be around about 18 minutes, but um, I was running nearly at five minute K pace, which was well outside that. And I remember coming around the first lap and I thought, man, there's still one more lap to go. I don't know that I can make it. And it, was, and it was 
a real effort and yet I was so competitive I didn't want anyone to pass me, I was putting in everything I possibly could and I remember coming around that last bend and I could actually see the finish line and I thought yes I can make it and so I ran even harder. Now when I got across the finish line there was a few medical staff there and coming around me and uh, what I realised I was wobbling a bit as I was coming in. I'd actually way overcooked myself. But you know, it's amazing the, the extra oomph that you can get when you can see the finish line in sight. And certainly, um, I think with the events happening around the world today, I think we'll have to agree that we can see the end in sight. Do you agree with me? Put up your hand if you agree with me. Yeah, that's, that's good. So we're going to talk about the end in sight part two. Last week, we looked at Revelation chapter 13. We looked at some of the keys to understanding Revelation chapter 13. And some of those keys, I'm not going to go through all of them, but one of those keys is actually that there's a verse at the end of a chapter which often introduces us to the next section. And in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, it tells us that the devil was enraged with who? With the church. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Those who do what? Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we discover that Revelation 13 is actually the attacks of the devil on who? On commandment keepers. Which gives us an idea that the real attack is actually on God's law. Would you agree with that? The real attack is actually on God's law and those who want to keep God's law. We find that uh, Revelation 12, 17 is actually bookended between Revelation 12, 17 and Revelation 14 and verse 12. In Revelation 14 and verse 12 it says, Here is the patience of the saints who, what? Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we find that... In Revelation 13, we have the attacks of the devil. In Revelation 14, we have the activities of God's people and we find the book ended between God's law. And we're going to have a look a little more at that today. Some of the clues on that first beast we looked at, we looked at uh, this beast that had seven heads and ten horns and we discovered one of the heads of the beast was had been wounded and the wounded and the head of this beast had been healed or was being healed. Um, we looked at the fact that it was asking for worship, it was a religious identity, and it was blaspheming God, not only just his name, but his temple and those who dwell in heaven. We find that it was in power for 42 months, which matches the same time period as the beast in Daniel 7, that little horn power that was in power for 1260 years. And we know in prophetic time, this 42 months equals that 1260 year period of time. We see also that it persecuted the saints back there and is persecuting the saints here in Revelation 13. So we know the identity of that um, beast that's had the, the deadly wound is actually the Roman Papal Church. Today we're going to look at another beast. One of the things also that we looked at last week, I should remind ourselves of that, 
is that that church today in Revelation 17 is described as having certain colours. Do you remember what those colours were? Purple, scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones. And here's just one of the pictures but we looked at a number of the pictures last week where that's the, that's the case but there is one colour missing. What was that colour? Blue. And we find the blue that the priests wore in the, in the days of the Israelites were to remind them of God's law. So here again we're seeing the importance of God's law in the middle of this section. So let's have a look at Revelation chapter 13, the end in sight. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. And I'm going to start in verse 11. Revelation chapter 13. And verse 11. Revelation 13, verse 11 says, Then I saw another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. And he exercised all authority of the first beast in his presence, and causes the earth and those to dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. Here we find this second beast. This second beast is what sort of beast? It's a lamb-like beast. What does the lamb represent in the Bible? Jesus Christ. I can't remember whether it's over 30 or 50 times that in the Bible the the word lamb is used to actually represent Jesus Christ. So this is telling us that this nation must be a Christ-like nation, a Christian nation. The only trouble is that it speaks like a dragon. We'll have a look at that a little bit later on. But we find that it rises around the same time as the first beast's deadly wound was healed. We find that it works alongside that beast. We find that it comes up out of the earth. Now, if I tell you a beast comes up out of the sea, what does it represent? It represents many nations, kindreds, tongues and people. So, so the, the meaning of this beast coming up out of the earth is actually separate to that. And the interesting thing in Revelation chapter 12, it tells us that the earth did what to those people who were being attacked? Maybe let's have a look at that. Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12 verse 14 to 16. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of its mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon spewed out of its mouth. Here we discover that, um, that the earth was actually helping the woman. Now I've been very blessed to go up into the top end of Italy, up into the Waldensian valleys, and, and just the way that they are 
are laid out is absolutely amazing. You have these amazing mountainous regions like the spokes of a wheel that run in and out from each other. And you find there that we actually went and worshipped in one of the caves there where the Waldensians hid from the uh, Roman power that was persecuting them at the time. There's plaques and there's monuments of what these people went through during those times and certainly the earth in that area helped them. But also many Christians actually fled to another place to find solace and peace. Anyone know what that place is? America. America, yeah. So I have to ask the question, do these clues fit America? Do these clues fit America? Well, the US declared its independence in 1776. It voted its constitution in 1787. It adopted its Bill of Rights in 1791. And by 1798, the US was recognised as a nation that was emerging as a world power. In 1776, it was was estimated that around 2.5 million people lived in the United States of America. Is that a lot of people? (laughs) If they're all in this church, it's a very lot of people, isn't it? (laughs) But certainly it wasn't for that area. And now today, America boasts over 300 million people. We see here that this lamb-like beast had two horns. And America was founded on two main principles. A power or a kingdom without a king and also a church without a pope. Church and state were to be separated. They weren't to be, the church was not to be the controlling power. Two main principles that it was founded on. We said that this lamb-like beast actually spoke like a dragon. So in other words, its character was opposite to its appearance. Its character was opposite to its appearance. Which gives you the uh, indication that maybe it's deceptive, doesn't it? And we certainly know that that's one of the tools of the devil is deception. But no other country fits the description of the beast like America. At the turn of the century, the, uh, the New York Times actually stated, the fact is no other country has been as dominant culturally, economically, technologically and military in the history of the world since the Roman Empire. So it is certainly and still seen today as that world power. Let's have a look at Revelation chapter 13. In verse, well, first of all, we need to also mention in Revelation 13, verse 12, we're going to find that it actually exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those to dwell in it to worship the first beast. That is the one that had the deadly wound and is now healed. Let's come down to verse 13, because if he's going to get the whole world to worship, How is it going to do that? How is it going to do that? Verse 13. He performs great signs so that even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Wow. What does that remind us of? Fire coming down from heaven. 
reminds us of the time when Elijah stood on Mount Carmel and the false prophets tried to do that very thing and they couldn't. And Elijah called fire down from heaven and consumed his sacrifice. Basically giving the people back in that time the opportunity, choose you this day, he says, whom you will serve, whether you'll continue serving the gods of Baal or whether you'll, or you'll change and serve the true God of heaven. They were given an ultimatum. You know, I think in uh, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 24 and 27, we also see a picture. Matthew 24 is a prophetic chapter in Matthew and it portrays the coming of the Lord. And because the disciples asked the question, he said, when will these things happen? In other words, when the destruction of Jerusalem will happen, but when will you return? And I think they were concerned more about the second one than the first one because they thought it was going to happen together. And Jesus says in this chapter four times, he gives the warning, be careful that you are not deceived. He says even the very elect could be deceived. How many people are going to be deceived here? No one. Well, that's good news. No need to preach this service then, is there? But you know, Matthew 24 also gives a description of Jesus coming and it said it will be as lightning comes from the east to the west. Revelation 1 verse 17, 1 verse 7 tells us that every eye will see him. Jesus coming is, is the, the absolute end and no one is going to be able to mistake his coming. But here in Revelation chapter 13, we find that fire is going to come down from heaven in the sight of men to deceive people. You know, one of the main deceptions that the devil uses is that he himself is going to impersonate Christ. How is he going to do that? How is he going to do that? What I found very interesting when I looked up the Greek word for lightning in Matthew 24... And the word from fire in Revelation 13, and it's the same Greek word. The same Greek word. So this event is going to be huge. And it can't not be huge if it's going to deceive the whole world. How are we going to have all these different religions come on board? How are we going to have everyone supporting this beast? By these miraculous signs that he's going to do. So here we find there's going to be miraculous signs, even calling fire down from heaven. It's going to be as lightning coming down from heaven. You, you imagine if everyone in the world saw this being coming down from heaven and then telling us to worship the beast of Revelation 13. It's going to be pretty convincing, isn't it? Let's read on verse 14 and 15. <clears throat> and he deceives those who dwell on the earth by the signs which was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would worship the image of the beast to be killed. So here we see the enforced worship, the enforced worship of what we had 
through the period of the Dark Ages, now coming back. We also see <coughs> that this reminds us of another time where people were forced to worship an image. In Daniel chapter 3. Remember in Daniel chapter 3, Daniel's three friends were there and they were asked, as soon as the music played, that they would bow down and worship the beast. Who were they worshipping while, I'm oh, sorry, worship the image? Who were they worshipping while worshipping the image? They were actually worshipping Nebuchadnezzar. Or who was behind what Nebuchadnezzar was doing? The devil. Because what had God said in the previous chapter? He said, your kingdom is coming to an end. After you, there's going to be another one that takes your place. And then another and another. And finally it tells us about this stone that is cut out from the mountain who is coming to set up his kingdom. And we find that is Jesus Christ. So by Nebuchadnezzar setting up this image all of gold and getting people to bow down to the image, he was actually getting them to agree that God is wrong and he is right. That God's way is false and his way is right and his kingdom would last forever. You know, when you look at how Babylon was structured, you can see how he could get that opinion because the walls were so high and so thick that you wondered how anyone could ever come in and defeat the Babylonians. But we know from history that that certainly did happen. <clears throat> it certainly did happen. Let's have a look at Revelation chapter 13 and verse 16. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 16. He caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand and in their foreheads. Here they were to receive a mark. You know, we've gone absolutely crazy with this mark because there's a number associated down um, in the last verse. We're not going to get into that today. We just don't have time. But we find that, that it causes everyone to have a mark in their foreheads and in their hands. What does that actually mean? It means the, the forehead is the thinking part of the brain. The forehead is where the decisions are made. The hand has to do with what we actually do. And we find that a decision will be made in the end of time. And those who decide to, to go with this power will receive that mark in their foreheads and it will reveal by the, the things that they do the decision that they have made. Revelation 14, 9 to 11 also reveals the survivors of, these one, of, of the ones that don't get the mark of the beast. We find in the three angels' messages, the third angel's message, we find the uh, catastrophe that's going to come upon those who worship the beast and worship his image. And we find those who remain faithful to God find rest in the end. We find also it is those that keep the commandments of God. Though if we keep the commandments of God, we miss out on the mark of the beast. See the contrast there that's being played out? It's over God's law. Revelation 7 also describes 
those who have the mark or the seal of God in their foreheads. The ones that will be protected at the very end of time will be those who are sealed by God. And we find a description of those people in Revelation chapter 7. When I look at Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10, it reveals if we have God's law in our hearts, we are classed as his people. I love Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 because it shows the, the difference between the first covenant and the second covenant. It shows that the first covenant only really pointed to the second covenant. And we find it has nothing to do with the, the abolishing of God's law because now God's law from, goes from the stone to being written in their hearts. In other words, it is on our hearts to keep God's law. It's on our hearts to want to do that. It's, it's a free choice that we make. Do we make it because of what Christ has done for us? That is now how it is written in our hearts. And the interesting thing that Hebrews 8 to 10 reveal, 8 and verse 10 reveals, is that we are actually God's people when that process has taken place. We are God's people. We're considered as his, as having his seal on our foreheads. I want us to turn over to Ezekiel now, Ezekiel chapter 9. You know, there's a lot of passages in Revelation that are associated with Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and other places in the Old Testament. Let's turn over to Ezekiel chapter 9. Ezekiel chapter 9 and verse 4. Ezekiel 9 and verse 4. It says here now... And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Here God's deciphering who is for him and who is not. And the very interesting thing, what were they sighing and crying over? They were sighing and crying over a group of people, and it reveals this in chapter, six, chapter 8, I should say, in verse 16. A group of people who were standing in the very temple of God with their backs to the Ark of the Covenant, facing the sun, worshipping the sun in God's temple. Worshipping the sun in God's temple. A lot of people aren't aware, but the, the way we got the name Sunday is from the worship of the sun god on that day. We see here a mark. You know, a mark or a seal has three main elements. And if you've got a coin in your pocket, you can certainly pull it out and you will see there that it has three elements on it. Three elements on it. It comes from the ancient times when the uh, king would wear a signet ring on his finger and whenever he sent out important documents, he would seal them up with some wax. He would put that seal in the wax and in that seal he would have three elements, just as we have on our coins today. We have what? We have Queen Elizabeth of Australia. So she is, her name is Elizabeth, her title is the Queen, 
And her territory is Australia. Three name main elements in a seal or a mark. In Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7, we find that those who worship God worship him as what? Do you remember? Those who worship God worship him as who? Maybe we better have a look at it. Revelation 14 and verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who what? Made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and the springs of living water. So we worship him because he's our creator. He's our creator. That's a good enough reason, isn't it? Also, the Bible reveals that we worship him because he's our redeemer. He's our creator and our redeemer. You know that verse, there's 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 278 of those verses are quotations or allusions to other parts in the Bible. And the other part, that this, the, the part where this comes from is from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11, it tells us that six days he made the heavens, the earth and the sea and the springs of living water using the exact same thing here. So we find that God's seal or God's mark is actually found in the very fourth commandment of the Bible, the Sabbath commandment. And here, right at the end of time, we're talking about the attack on the commandments. In Daniel, we see the attack on God's people. In uh, Daniel chapter 3, the men were to do what? To bow down to an image. That's breaking the what? Second commandment. Daniel was also told to worship no other god but the king. That's also breaking the second commandment. And here, right at the end of time, we're going to see these two beasts coming together to enforce the breaking of the fourth commandment. The breaking of the commandment that has God's seal, his, his name, his title, and his territory. God's mark is found in the fourth commandment. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12, it tells us what? Let's have a look at that. Ezekiel chapter 20. I should have got you to keep your hands there in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 12. It says there, Moreover I gave them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So it's a sign that the Lord is the one who sanctifies us. How did he do that? By dying for us. By living that perfect life for us. And by helping us to do the same. In verse 20 it says, Hallow my Sabbaths, that they will be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. 
right throughout the right throughout the Bible, we see that the Sabbath is actually a sign. It's a marker. It's a seal that we are God's people, that we belong to Him because we keep His commandments. We keep the fourth commandment also. I want us to have a look at a couple of quotes from the beast because. If the seal of God is the fourth commandment, what is the seal or the mark of the beast? You know, we only have to go to the Roman church to discover that because they tell us themselves. Let's have a look at one of the quotes that's got there. It says, The church has always had a sense of its own authority. Perhaps the boldest thing, the most revolutionary change the church ever did, the holy day, the Sabbath, was changed from Saturday to Sunday. The day of the Lord was chosen not from any direction noted in scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power. Coming from St. Catholic Church Sentinel, volume 50, back in 1950, 1995. What else does it say? Coming from a reply letter... Talking about this change, it says, Of course, the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act. And the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. She claims that her mark is the Sunday law, or the worship on Sunday, I should say. She claims that that is her mark. And she also claims that in all other Protestant churches worshipping on Sunday, they also agree that she has the authority to change that day. The final conflict in Revelation 13 reveals the beast riding riding a multi-headed beast, joining forces with a land beast to have worship enforced. Now the question I want to ask ourselves today is can we see the beginning of these things? There's a lot of people talking about the coronavirus and what it's doing and all the rest of it and and that the world's coming to an end because all of these things are happening and certainly Matthew 24 reveals that. But can we see this last thing happening that is going to come upon the earth? The enforcement of worship. I want to show you a few quotes that I come across this week. And it says here, Are the Holy See and the United Nations too close for comfort? Now I'm not trying to say that the United Nations is that multi-headed beast or the ten horns that support this beast. That is future from our day, but I know that that's what it very well could be. I want to read a couple of things here. It says, When the Pope Francis received in private audience United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres in December, the UN chief trumpeted the fact that the Holy See's concerns coincide with the core values of the United Nations Charter. In other words, they're on the same page that we are. It makes sense to align ourselves with her. These values consisted of reaffirming the dignity and worth of human person. That's a good thing, isn't it? We're not sure? Yes? I think it is. 
especially with regards to protecting the planet. Is that a good thing to protect the planet? Certainly is, isn't it? That's what we were meant to do. We find right at the end of the time that God is going to destroy those who have destroyed the earth. So we should be protecting our planet. Notice that last line that says, uh, the holy seas. Notice what it's calling him. The holy seas was some um, communique was similar, focusing on peace, the UN's sustainable development goals, climate change and migration. And we've certainly seen the Pope stand up a lot about climate change recently. He's actually written some things on this very thing. But where does America fit into all this? Where does America fit in? I want to show you another quote of uh, recently some of the things that uh, Donald Trump did and who was supporting him. And uh, tells us, yeah, President Donald Trump has report, responded to Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano's open letter to him published on Sunday. So honoured by Archbishop Vigano's incredible letter to me, the President says. President Trump tweeted on Wednesday evening, I hope everyone, religious or not, reads it. In his June letter, Archbishop Vigano, who's served as apostolic UCO to the United States from 2011 to 2016, praised Donald Trump's leadership as he faced criticism for the handling of the coronavirus pandemic and the protests over the death of George Floyd. They're actually praising him for his efforts in those period of times. You can see there a picture of him holding up a Bible. How many knew that Donald Trump was a religious man? He's a very religious man here, isn't he? I don't see him portraying that very often. Here again, this is part of the letter that he wrote to Trump. He says, just as there is a deep state, there is also a deep church that betrays its duties and forswears its proper commitments before God. Archbishop Vigano observed, adding that the church and the world are facing a spiritual battle which he spoke about in his recent appeal. And then it goes on to say um, that how he's praising Donald Trump and how he's doing more than any president before him in this battle. We also know, I know many of you know, about the Pope Francis's meeting in May this year which got cancelled because of the coronavirus. He has now rescheduled that for October. But he wants to re-educate the earth. What does he want to re-educate the earth on? One of his main things is climate change. How is he going to bring that about? He's written an encyclical about it that reveals that we all need to take one day off. A week. A week. He's saying what this coronavirus has shown is that already the benefits to our planet. For the first time there's people in India that actually see the Himalayas in the background. We are seeing a cleaner, greener environment. It's like the World Health Organiser said, COVID-19 is the challenge and opportunity of our time, reminding us that the only way forward is together. 
The only way forward is together. Vatican City, just on April 22, where Pope Francis made an impassioned plea for the protection of the environment. On Wednesday's 50th anniversary of the first Earth Day, saying the coronavirus pandemic has shown that some challenges had to be met with a global response. Francis praised the environmental movement, saying it was necessary for young people to take to the streets to teach us what is obvious, that there is no future if we destroy our environment. Also, it tells us this year, year's Earth Day has prompted calls from many, including the UN Secretary. So here, now notice we're bringing in the UN Secretary into this mix of these two, these, which is now three. The UN Secretary, General Antonia Guthrie's, for governments to pursue green recovery in response to coronavirus, both the Pope and Guthrie's have made environmental protection and climate change signature themes of their office. In other words, they're working closely together. We see these natural tragedies, which are the Earth's response to our maltreatment. Francis said here, I think that if I were to ask the Lord, I don't know why he doesn't, but he said, if I was to ask the Lord now what he thinks about this, I don't think he would say it is a very good thing. It is we who have ruined the work of God. That's a true statement, isn't it? Yeah. Now let's have a look at this group of people, this environmental group of people that, that, um, that the UN chief and the Pope has also recognised to be on their side. See, green, and they call themselves Green Sabbath. Green Sabbath is a non-religious, non-political, non-profit campaign which aims to raise awareness and to encourage people to help slow climate change, preserve precious natural resources and to improve planet health by observing at least one carbon footprint free day each week on any day of the week. So they're not actually advocating a day, but what are they calling it? Symbolically, a green Sabbath. A green Sabbath. Hmm. You know, there's many more quotes just like that. But is the end in sight? Is the end in sight? This is unfulfilled prophecy that we've been talking about today but we can see that the doors are open for this to happen. What does Jesus say when we see these signs and wonders? Come over with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verses 32 and 33. It says here in Matthew 24, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and it's put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. In other words, from, from that sign you know that summer is near. So he said, so also when you see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Revelation 12, 17. 
Revelation 12, 14, 12. This passage is bookended between those who keep the commandments of God. It's really clear to me that the end time will be over God's law. And just like in Daniel, when they're asked to break the first commandment and the second commandment, we will be asked to break the fourth commandment. Revelation 22, verses 7 and 12 tell us that the time is near, is quickly coming to a close. These events are going to be rapid events. They're going to come very close to an end. But I want to finish on Revelation 13 and verse 8. Revelation 13 and verse 8 says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. How do we get our names written in that book? We accept Christ as our personal saviour. We accept what he has done for us. And when we do that, we will want to follow his law. We will want to follow his way. Right at the end of time, we only see two groups of people. We cannot see how there could only be two groups of people. But with the miraculous works of the devil in the last days, we're going to be able to see that there is only two groups of people. Those who stay true to God and those who worship man's way. What's your decision today? This message was made available by the Lismore Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Lismore Seventh-day Adventist Church.
He chose to worship the true God. As he prayed, he did not hide. With his windows open wide, he was cast into a den of hungry lions. But he lived to greet the king, for his God protected him. God placed him there. Maybe you are here for such a time as this. Like Esther, like Daniel, serving God courageously, standing for the right, even if you have to stand alone. Maybe God has placed you here. Such a time as this. Though you are fearful, hold tight to Jesus. He will be your strength and give you what you need. song collective sang for such a time up next midnight cry by christian edition
I see prophecies fulfilled And signs of the times They're appearing everywhere I can almost hear the Father As he says, Son, give your cheer tip lady who loves to help make life more simple. Do you want to feel better? I've got two tips for you that work. How do I know these work? Because I do it. If I didn't, I couldn't preach it, could I? I'm not a medical professional and you'll see that, not at all. But I do know this, that walking fast is good for me and good for you. So that's tip number one. Get out and walk, fast if you can. And while you're moving those feet, look for the beautiful and unusual things along the way. Because they're there, you just have to look. Do you know why walking is so good for you? Here's a simple reason. We don't need a fancy-dancy explanation anyway. When you hike along at a pretty good clip, you're bringing oxygen into your body. And your arteries are getting oxygenated. The gunk is getting cleaned out. Well, that's a super simple explanation of how your blood pressure improves when you exercise. So many people have a lot of extra fat stacked up in their arteries and so their arteries become narrowed. Then off they go and have bypasses and stents put in to clear out the gunk. Well, what if they simply exercised sufficiently long before they got to the point where they'd need surgery? Wouldn't that have been a great idea? So if it's not too late for you, get your shoes on and out you go. 
So there's tip number one right there. Shoes on, out you go. Sure, sometimes it's too hot. Sometimes it's too freezing. But figure out the best time of day, put those sneakers on and walk. What else does exercise do for you? Oh, well I know, it helps you sleep better. Yeah, it helps me. And you'll never know if you don't give it a go. So if you feel silly when you're heading off to an exercise class or zipping along the road on your feet while others are serenely driving along in their cars, who cares? Feelings don't matter. Facts do. And the fact is that when you do, you are doing something great for your body. So there's tip number two. Do something great for your body. Start today. I hope these two tips help you too. So these are simple. Are there more? Sure. If you really want that healthy body, there's more. But take action on these for starters and you'll sleep better and improve your blood pressure too. James reminds us in James 1.22 to be doers and not hearers only. So we can choose to ignore these simple steps or we can take action starting today. That's it from the two-tip lady who loves to make life more simple. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.